Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time. My name is Brett Kane, and I'll be your host on this journey as we survey a multidisciplinary field of practices and worldviews which help us keep our butts in the saddle of our lives. Joining us on the show today is Buddhist scholar, author, and photographer Andy Carr. Having been a student of the widely revered Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, Andy has gone on to teach the Buddha Dharma all across the world serving as a senior teacher in Kenpo Solchim Gyamso Rinpoche's Sangha, and also as a professor at the Gampo Abbey Monastic College. He's written three books, including his most recent, Into the Mirror, which was released in the spring of 2023, and will serve as the foundation for the themes covered in this episode. Speaking of which, this conversation is going to be an exploration of the practice of Buddhist contemplation, the mechanics of how it works with our minds, and what it does for our meditation practice. We then take that tool to investigate the various kinds of materialistic viewpoints and the ways they inhibit our ability to be at peace, which ultimately leads us to explore some antidotes from the Buddhist tradition to help free our perceptions so that we can see with fresh eyes and with more agency. As you can tell, this is a very juicy conversation. It has a lot of useful insights, and I think it'll be great for both seasoned practitioners and newcomers alike. If you enjoy what you're hearing today, head on over to andycarauthor.com and check out some of Andy's other works. He's got some online teachings up there and some links to purchase one of his books. I really encourage Into the Mirror. I think it is really fantastic. As I say in the start of this conversation, I've gone through two and a half times at the time of this recording, and I'm still chewing on so much that's presented. So if you want to support this show, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism and becoming a patron. It's really just a glorified tip jar at this point, but it really does help me keep the lights on. If you don't want to support financially, that's totally okay. It's crazy out there, and I understand. You can also subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram. Any and all activity helps me kind of grow this platform and make the appeal to other amazing guests such as Andy and really just lets me know that you're out there, which really connection is one of the sweet medicines of this century of now. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Without further ado, please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and most importantly, open your heart for Andy Carr. So Andy, hello. We are now live. Uh, I usually start the show off by just saying thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I'm sure you're a fairly busy man. So how are you doing today? Uh, I am doing really well, Brett, and uh, delighted to be here and uh, not too busy to do this. Wonderful. Love it. So uh, just as a preface for you and my listeners, uh, I found your work last year. Uh, I was a part of a year-long Buddhist studies course by uh, Ethan Nickturn, and we used your book, Contemplating Reality. It's kind of a framework to explore the different schools of Buddhist thought, and one of my big takeaways outside of you've done your research was that uh, I didn't really know what contemplation was uh, before I started that book. I had kind of like a surface-level idea. I'm like, yeah, you're thinking about stuff. 
But I really attribute to that book just a deepening of my understanding of how it's a practice and like a core part of the Buddhist methodology. So I can imagine uh, some of my listeners probably have that same surface level understanding. So I wanted to start this off by just exploring what exactly is contemplation as a practice and how does it fit into this world of Buddhist thought and um, yeah, practice? Well, I think you nailed uh, one of the main reasons for writing that book. What uh, I observed back in maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was first working on it was that I and many of my friends and colleagues had not really reflected very deeply on the view, on the, um, the meaning and the, um, the intention behind a lot of the practices we were doing. So a lot of emphasis on meditation, uh, a lot of emphasis on study, although less so, I would say. And uh, the bridge between the two was missing. At the time, I was studying with a Tibetan Kempo. A Kempo's uh, a scholar who's um, reached the highest level of scholarship in the tradition, named um, Kempo Tsotram Gyamso Rinpoche. And um, not, he's not only a renowned scholar, but a, a great yogi as well. So um, he brings together the meditative and the study tradition. And uh, with us, uh, he did a lot of contemplation. He did a lot of uh, training in which he asked us to reflect on the teachings that we had studied uh, and contemplate them. So to give you a concrete sense of that, the first time I did a long retreat under his guidance, he told me to read uh, his very short book called The Progressive Stages of Meditating on Emptiness uh, twice a day for a week, each chapter. So I think there's six chapters or seven chapters, and I had to read each one 14 times, which if you've ever tried to read something again and again and again, you know, your eyes get numb and so on and so forth. But what really struck me through doing that is that all the different kinds of issues and questions that would come up over the course of each reading. And uh, that started to give me a feeling for the, the flavor of contemplation, that, that it wasn't just studying and it wasn't just meditating that were important, but somehow uh, integrating the two. So um, to go on to try to answer the question you raised, uh, the process of contemplation is conceptual. It involves the intellect and it involves um, both resting and inquiry. So there's some aspect of resting with whatever you're reflecting on and inquiring about how that um, meets with your experience. Hmm. Okay. 
So how does that influence our meditation? Like how, how have you noticed in your lifetime of practicing, you know, you have one of these ideas that you're kind of chewing over. Do you kind of bring that into your traditional sitting practice or does it kind of perfume your experience or how would you describe how that deepens our experiential understanding? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably more than perfuming in the sense that, um, a lot of the teachings on the view are challenging views that we hold, understandings that we hold about our own experience. You know, we might believe that we experience our own brains, for example. And studying the view might challenge that. For example, you recite the Heart Sutra and the Heart Sutra says, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. And you can recite that and then go into meditation practice and think, oh, well, all these thoughts are coming from my brain. Not making the connection between the view that's being presented in the Heart Sutra and our own experience. So having that as um, a basis for reflection, you might then look and see, well, do I experience a brain? What do I experience? Where do my thoughts come from? Do they arise from some organ in my body? Or do they come out of a tube in my mind? How does that work? So the, the contemplative process leads directly into the meditation of looking at your experience, reflecting on it. So I guess another important piece of that is that um, generally, in the West at least, we think of meditation as calming, pacifying, subduing our thoughts. You know, we want to get rid of the stuff that's driving us crazy, and uh, we try to do that by meditating and um, pacifying. The um, tradition presents meditation a little differently, that there's an aspect of meditation that's very important, which involves pacifying, which is just letting be, letting whatever it is that appears in your mind, whether it's troubling or pleasing, just to be there without trying to manipulate it, without trying to get rid of it. But then the next aspect that's really important is investigating, investigating what it is that's appearing. So it's not just a matter of letting the mind settle, but then looking at the mind, whether it's settled or not. And those two things are called traditionally shamatha, which is cultivating peace, and vipassana, which is cultivating insight. So the, the contemplation piece really links up with the cultivation of insight. You're um, using your inquisitiveness or you're provoking inquisitiveness through studying the view and reflecting on it and then trying to see how your experience um, either mirrors that or contradicts it or whatever. Mm. Yeah. So 
What would you say is maybe a key difference for people who might not have had experience for this? Uh, I think the Western tradition relies heavily on philosophizing and like using concepts and like kind of grappling with them as these external things that they're figuring out. Whereas from my experience with contemplation, it's almost like a lock and key in my experience that opens up a new like fundamental perspective shift. But how how would you describe that difference between philosophizing and then the, the contemplation? There there can be both in the, this tradition. You know, um, if you look at the middle way or Madhyamaka way of proceeding, they use a lot of logics. In fact, they have these five great reasonings of the middle way that uh, will drive you crazy if you really dive into them. And uh, for good reason, the 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 purpose of these reasonings is to show that the way we think reality is, is wrong. So it, it really challenges us and uh, doing these as a contemplation, doing these as reflection and then looking at our experience uh, with these can be very much on the quote, philosophizing side. Mm. You know, you, you have to ask yourself questions like, do things arise from themselves, from something other than themselves, from both, or without causes? That's one of the most famous middle way reasonings. And when you start to look at that, it will definitely require a certain amount of philosophizing and... Uh, generate a little intellectual heat and uh, hopefully a little fire that will consume itself. So that's kind of the, is that maybe one of the key things that it consumes itself? Yeah, very okay. much so. Okay. But, you know, that's one style of contemplation uh, in the Buddhist tradition. There, there's other styles as well. You know, the Madhyamaka is not the only teaching on the view. There's um, other teachings that are much more yogic-oriented. And those, too, require a certain amount of investigation and contemplation and reflection. So um, the Yogacara tradition, which is another one of the Mahayana traditions, emphasizes much more uh, looking at experience rather than looking at the logic of uh, phenomena, and but there too, it can require a very healthy dose of contemplation. Mm. So one of the foundational teachings in Yogacara is that um, what we experience is always merely cognition. It's real. It's our own experience always, and that believing that there's something external to our experience is a, um, a view that is not supported by reality. So that one's a, a big challenge and requires a lot of reflection to dig into, but very fruitfully. You don't have the, the kind of logical tools that the middle way people use, that Nagarjuna pioneered, but you have some some very good contemplative 
um, investigations to do that that can be quite liberating, as you say. They can be, you know, at a certain point, the key goes in and unlocks something. But uh, to find out exactly where that lock is and to put the key in there can require a lot of effort, a lot of um, uh, diligence. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm kind of, I'm happy and also, I don't know what the word is, but the fact that you brought up the mere uh, cognizance, um, that was something that I've been chewing on from your book. Uh, I've, I've read your newest book into the mirror, probably two and a half times in the past month. <laughs> and that was the Sorry. chapter. No, it's okay. I, I, I love it. I've, I'm having that experience of rereading it and getting new things every time. But that chapter, that's been something I've been just gumming, trying to understand. Um, and I do want to get into that a little bit, uh, but more broadly speaking, is it possible for people to maybe get caught? in the contemplative side of things and not actually have the direct experience, but still kind of convince themselves like, I have a deep understanding because I can articulate these logics and I can, you know, communicate these things. Like, how do we kind of not fall into that? That's a really good point. Um, I think it's almost inescapable, inevitable that, you know, you study this stuff a lot and you try to figure it out and you contemplate it and you develop some confidence in your understanding and um, you haven't quite gotten to the point of unlocking that door, but you feel like you're kind of on top of it. And, you know, you can get stuck there. And I think we all do to some extent. But there's bound to be some pain or suffering or irritation in your life that will show you that, oh, wait a second, um, all that intellectual understanding isn't really helping me at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That, uh, that hopefully will push you back to, to, um, to take it further. Yeah. And, and hopefully also, you know, I think one of the things we see a lot is that there's a t tendency for a split between the um, the meditators and the scholars. Mm -hmm. And in Tibet, that was a big problem eventually, that, that the split became very um, deep, that, you know, some people would go off and do a three-year retreat. Others would spend 11 years in the Shedra, the... the college, the monastic college, and uh, not, you know, one group would, would meditate a little blindly because they didn't study the view, and the other group would not meditate at all because they were into the intellectual side. So uh, I think balancing those two is essential. And uh, my, um, one of my main teachers was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who emphasized so forcefully the need to do both. Yeah. To have the sitting practice of meditation as kind of the foundation of your Buddhist experience and enough study along with that so that you aren't becoming a, quote, dumb meditator, <laughs> you know, someone who was just like trying 
to peace out or something. That's very much his verbiage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was something that I was wondering because uh, in 2024, you know, the year we're in, uh, it, it seems like it's really common for people to come to meditation through apps or maybe like a YouTube video. And some people can create really dedicated practices using these devices, but it lacks that view and the the contemplative element to it. What would you say is maybe uh, one of the biggest downfalls of that? Or is there any benefit to that? Or what do you, what's your opinion as someone who's spent your whole life doing this on just this new trend of um, kind of viewless meditation? I don't think it's a new trend. You know, uh, in the 1970s, when I first got involved, we were pretty anti-intellectual, most of us, that, um, you know, we really didn't want to study classical texts or anything like that. We wanted to meditate and um, do it ourselves, whatever that meant. So I don't think that's a new thing. Uh, and I think that anything that gets people looking at their own experience uh, is valid and important and, and, and useful. I was just at an interesting program in Mexico uh, with about a thousand other people that Zongsar uh, Kensei Rinpoche conducted. And it was a 10-day uh, program that uh, is what you call in Tibetan a lung, a reading transmission. And he was reading these um, seven treasuries of Longchenpa, which is a collection of seven very important works from, I think, the 14th century. And uh, I went down there kind of cynical, thinking, oh, God, sitting and listening to Tibetan for 10 days, what a waste of time. <laughs> and I found, uh, first of all, that it wasn't a waste of time at all, that it was quite lovely uh, having him there, teaching occasionally, reading his presence, my just being able to sit there and practice, that was all really fantastic. I enjoyed it immensely. But what, what really impressed me about the whole event was of the thousand people who were there, or the 1,200, I don't know how many it was, I would guess that 90% would never have considered going to a meditation retreat. But that 90% spent hours each day sitting with their own experience and hearing some teachings. There were a lot of young people there, uh, people who might have learned about meditation from apps. And I was very impressed that you know, just creating a situation like that where people could connect with their own experience and with the teachings a bit could be so potent. So I, I'm not, you know, I I've, have been very hard-assed at times in my life and thought, if you don't meditate for 10 hours a day, it's bullshit yeah. <laughs> or whatever. But um, I, I'm... I'm getting old. 
<laughs> and I'm starting to see that there are a lot of different ways that people can engage with Buddhism and with their own experience that um, are really valid and helpful to them yeah. and might lead them deeper and deeper. You know, at a certain point, it's going to be up to each person's individual karmic connection, whether, you know, they have the passion to want to go deep or to keep it at a certain level or just to touch in with it at this point. And uh, I think I have to um, respect all of those. Yeah. Yeah, I think any increased quality of wakefulness in today's day and age is uh, needed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty much every level of society. You know, I've yeah. felt very fortunate to be able to plug in. Um, you know, David Nickturn is my primary teacher, him and Larry. Uh, and it's just been so cool to be able to plug into such a rich lineage. Uh, you know, and I feel connected to Chogim Trumpa also, because we're usually going through his works. Uh, and it just the honor and the responsibility of being able to plug in and seeing all the work that was laid out by your generation and just like how it's changed uh, as it's been, the torch has kind of been handed down and how my contemporaries are running with it as well and the different nuances they're exploring and the new things, the fresh kind of presentations that uh, bring in like social justice and environmentalism and the way that the Dharma has changed for the container of our society is just really uh, humbling and just been amazing to be able to be a part of. Well, you know, we're, I'm personally really delighted to hear that anyone wants to pick up the torch and run with it and really want to encourage anyone to do that in the way that they see is, um, is real and um, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of picking up the torch, you know, I feel like a lot of this conversation has, we've really carved out kind of a methodology for how to practice in terms of how to relate to the view, how to bring it into meditation. Um, and I wanted to shift into like the what of the practice, like sure. what it is that we're contemplating. But before that, I did want to carve out a time for this conversation to kind of talk about maybe in my eyes is one of the biggest like caution indicators. And it was maybe the most important teaching that I got from plugging into David and Chogim Trumpa. Uh, and this is an idea that he came up with called spiritual materialism. Uh, this to me has been one of the most game-changing and immediately uh, recognizable energies of my spiritual life of over 10 years. Uh, and it's one of those things that as soon as I learned, I'm like, oh, I've just been going <laughs> like I that was my whole life. Uh, yeah. So sure. I would love to just explore what that concept is and maybe even a broader just materialism in general and how this can inhibit our development spiritually oh yeah it's a big one i know <laughs> Sorry it's a big to do one that. and 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 i think you know in the very early days with trungpa rinpoche probably the two things well maybe three things that he really emphasized a lot were the sitting practice of meditation um spiritual materialism and um all of the three lords of materialism and um 
giving up hope. Yeah. You know, giving up hope that, you know, we're going to become somebody fantastic. And uh, so, you know, those were themes that he kept at year after year and really worked away at. So, yeah, I, I started out wanting to become a Zen master. I didn't want to become a Zen student or uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to become enlightened and be a Zen master like the people in the koans or like Tashira Mufuni in the Seven Samurai. <laughs> that was my ambition. So uh, it took a little uh, surgery to uh, cut out a lot of that stuff. But I, I think, you know, the simple explanation is that we're always trying to possess things that will augment the ego. Mm. Whether it's physical stuff that, you know, we want to acquire um, that will make us feel like we've got the coolest or the best or the most whatever. Uh, whether it's knowledge that, you know, intellectual knowledge uh, that will make us feel superior to others and so on. Or spiritual experience and spiritual trappings that will make people think that we're really hot shit. Um, yeah, there's, there's, that, there's always that sense of uh, hunger, of um, neediness, the lack of just plain satisfaction with who and what we are, which is ego's MO. It's the, the way that um, this illusory self perpetuates itself. You know, I need the next thing. And it could be spiritual or psychological or material, but there's always that hunger and unfulfilledness. And the way that works is that something appears in our mind as a desirable object. And we don't recognize what has happened. We don't realize that what has happened is mind has just appeared in a certain way. It's appeared as a new phone. And we have this idea that, oh yeah, that would be good. And then it picks up steam and we get more and more involved in um, thinking about, desiring, amping up our interest in whatever we think will make us happier, better, stronger, more respected, whatever it is. And um, then we act on it. We go out and buy the phone or we start reading reviews and whatever it is and we plant further seeds of uh, wantingness. Uh, and, and that's called the karmic chain reaction. Something appears in your mind, you don't recognize that it's just dream stuff, you start pursuing it, you know, you take a positive attitude toward it, you start pursuing it, um, you start actually doing something about that with that intention, that's planting further seeds, 
and then those seeds ripen as more things that appear in your mind and so on. So um, those karmic reactions at the core, the issue is you didn't see what was happening in your mind. That's where it all starts, always. But then it becomes this chain reaction uh, that produces further things that you don't recognize. Mm. Well, what's, what's wrong with that? I feel like a lot of people would be like, that's just life, right? You, you have a vision and then you go do it and then you move on to the next. You know, I guess, what is there a negative connotation to that? Or Well, th there's two negative problems there. One is that um, that sense of being driven, compelled from one moment to the next, which never lets up, that is the fundamental dissatisfaction. Mm. Like, we never rest. We never just go... Something is always driving us forward. And the other is the sense of being imprisoned. Mm. You know, we're bound. We have this sense of, like, no freedom of choice. You know, when that first thing appears in your mind, you don't have the freedom to say, eh, no, <laughs> yes, whatever. You get launched in this chain reaction. So that's like ultimate imprisonment, that you're always a prisoner of the next thing that appears. And um, the whole point of the Buddhist practice, study, whatever, altogether is the freedom to not be driven by these compulsions these chain reactions. And that freedom comes from just recognizing that what appears in our minds is just our mind. It's just mind stuff. And it's not the world appearing validly to us, informing us that if we do this, good stuff will happen mm -hmm. or bad stuff. I mean, that goes both ways. Some things attract us and some repel us. Some create hope, some create fear. But so, the meaning of the word samsara is this bondage, this being driven in circles. You know, it's, it's literally this sense of being turned around and around, driven round and round, and never being free. So... You can have a thought of a new iPhone or whatever and go out and buy it and no problem. If you recognize this process and you're not driven by it. But our, um, the reason we need Buddhism is that we don't recognize it. We don't recognize that we are prisoners of our own projections. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. <laughs> I mean, that's to me is what what this whole thing's about. Yeah, so, and there's lots of methods and practices and studies and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, what's really going to matter is just if you can recognize 
what's appearing to you and not be blinded by it and driven by it and compelled by it, then you have freedom. You can go ahead and do the yes or no, but in a way that is um, insightful rather than blind. Mm. Yeah, that's been something that I've kind of gotten tripped up in with even pursuing something like Buddhism, because even what you just described, I feel like you could turn that into another projection. Like, all right, well, I'm going to get past the being driven by my projections and I'm just going to practice. And then it just like reinstates itself. And then you're back at square one. How, How do you determine or like suss out whether or not you're being motivated by that or if you're genuinely practicing from a place of insight? Is there any like tells that people can plug into? Well, I think the biggest tell is that sense of compulsion. You know, that you feel like you can't rest. Okay. You know, when you when you can actually let go of things and uh, be with your experience in a very relaxed way, then you're doing pretty well on the path. And as long as there's a lot of struggle involved to achieve or to get rid of or whatever it is, um, you haven't quite got the point yet. Yeah, okay. And, you know, that comes back to the spiritual materialism because that is what's driving the meditation efforts, you know, that our, our meditation tends to be very effortful because we're still bound by these visions of achieving something, getting somewhere, instead of being, instead of just being with whatever is appearing. Yeah. Makes me think of uh, Ram Dass had this, this idea he talked about with, like, you start off with like a ball and chain, and then when you pick up a spiritual practice, you've traded that ball and chain for like a golden one. And like, <laughs> but you're still chained. You know, yeah. you've just kind of got a, a fluffier more idealistic one. Yeah. Well, and, you know, his first book was Be Here Now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Just be here now. Okay. Yeah. You can't be more basic than that. Yeah. Yep. So we've, we've talked about a methodology at this point. We've talked about how we kind of practice a path like this. We've talked about um, maybe some of like the warning signs. Just, it's just the flashing red lights like, hey, just be mindful of that. Uh, but I do want to shift into that what, like what it is that we're looking at. And this is a, a big part of, in my opinion, what your work has done is really outlined these different kind of like stages of development and thought. Um, so I think like one of the best ways from my perspective to kind of lay that out is by looking at the the yanas, uh, of which the Mahayana was the focus of your newest book, Into the Mirror. Um, so for the people who've never heard of these uh, could you just run us through what exactly those are and why you feel the Mahayana, I mean, was such an important element that you dedicated a whole book to it? Sure. Um, yana is uh, a term that means vehicle. And um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's different versions of this anywhere from three to nine vehicles, which uh, I think uh, the notion is that 
as we progress along the path in our own personal journey, we need more and more subtle insights because the obstacles are becoming more subtle. You know, at first, our obstacles are very coarse and vivid and obvious. And so the, the tools we need to deal with that can be fairly crude. As we go along, we become both uh, more advanced and more uh, subtly self-deceived. <laughs> and we need more subtle methods of, of taking that apart, of overcoming delusion. And so the, um, the various yanas or vehicles are different ways of, of approaching this confusion. So the, 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 I guess the main way this is presented is in terms of three yanas, three vehicles. <coughs> Excuse me. There's uh, the foundational vehicle, which uh, has been referred to a lot in the Tibetan tradition as the Hinayana, uh, or um, the narrow vehicle. And uh, that's a problematic term. It's problematic because it, it comes out of this uh, Mahayana chauvinism, uh, looking down on the, the fundamental uh, vehicle. And uh, so I have, and a lot of people have abandoned using Hinayana as a term. We talk about the foundational vehicle or the Shravakayana, the vehicle of the hearers. Uh, there are other terms that are used. But the notion is, this is for people like us. This is people who take things to be real and solid and um, are basically looking after our own liberation, individual self-liberation. And so the, the basic teachings of Buddhism are presented from the perspective of uh, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, which is um, desire and grasping, there is the possibility of freedom from suffering, and then there is the path that leads to that freedom. That is the fundamental teaching of the Buddha that actually, in more and more refined ways, is presented in each of the three yanas, each of the three vehicles. But in the Hinayana, it's the core teaching, the most important one. So, um, as we uh, make this journey and we start to tame our minds and start to recognize a bit how they work, we start to see that it's not so much the, um, the desire for th things that is driving the show as our ignorance of the nature of that desire. And that is, I think, the entryway to the Mahayana, where you start to see it's an inner journey uh, more than an outer journey. Mm -hmm. The foundational vehicle is much more connected with the outer journey of um, doing virtue, 
avoiding non-virtue and taming your mind. There's a shift in the Mahayana where you're still doing those, but you're adding much more emphasis to the inner experience of what is happening when this um, delusion arises? What is happening when craving arises? What, is it craving for something or is it craving for my version of that thing, some inner experience of it? And so the, the Mahayana becomes much more an inner journey and much less focused on our own progress, our own liberation, and more on trying to help others, trying to share this journey with others. So you have the, the two main emphases on, in the Mahayana on wisdom and compassion. Wisdom being developing the insight into our own delusion. Yeah. And compassion being both a way of decentering, de-focusing on our own neediness and looking at others and seeing how their experience is and trying to help them. Yeah. And then the, the Vajrayana, which is the third vehicle, the indestructible or admantine vehicle as it's called, is the, um, the path of method where um, they're not changing the kind of view that is developed in the Mahayana, but they have um, developed further methods, uh, powerful methods of transforming confusion into wisdom, you know, right on the spot. So uh, those are the three yanas, or three vehicles. My interest in the Mahayana in particular comes from my own experience of finding how valuable that training was to me personally, that um, the uh, insights of the Mahayana are... Um, are really profound and, and central and difficult and uh, require some unpacking. And I've had the sense that often they're not presented very uh, accessibly. Yeah. So that's why I've focused on it. Yeah. You know, we've talked a few times throughout this conversation about this notion of like there being an illusory self and kind of materialism as being kind of a gate. Uh, what about the Mahayana teachings do you feel like helps us kind of pierce through that and kind of see like what is the on the other side of materialism? Yeah. Well, um, I think there's there's two main Mahayana traditions, and there's the Middle Way tradition, which emphasizes the lack of nature in things, That's, that all the stuff that seems to be so real and solid and uh, independently existing doesn't really have that nature. 
that that's something we project onto our experience, not something that is at the heart of what we see. So that really cuts through a lot of our confusion. I'll give you an example that I like a lot that came from my teacher. Um, often the Madhyamaka or Middle Way tradition talks about pillars and tables and pots being empty, being emptiness. And Kempo Tsultram Gyamsa Rinpoche, who taught a lot of uh, the Middle Way to us, said, you know, that's great, but really what's important is recognizing that our enemies are free from having the nature of being enemies, that our friends are free from having the nature of being friends, that they are, um, their nature is emptiness, and yet they appear very vividly. And once you can cut through that kind of clinging to your identifying them in a certain way, you free yourself up, and then you also free up the relationship because you're not reacting to them in some habitual way, but you can open up to however they present themselves at that moment. So, you know, that's the emptiness that's presented by the middle way tradition. And as I think I mentioned earlier about the various reasonings that they use to help puncture our, uh, our fixation on solidity. And then the other main Mahayana tradition is the Yogacara, or yogic conduct tradition, yogic practice tradition, who emphasize meditation much more than reasonings or, or intellect logic. And what they the way they approach this is not so much looking at the things we experience and showing their emptiness, but looking at the experiencer and showing that the experiencer has no nature. That um, whenever we um, have um, a sense of an object, there's also a sense of a subject experiencing that object that arises, but neither of them is substantial. So um, they provide a lot of um, teachings and uh, views to help looking at that basic duality of subject and object, and um, to recognize that, that the whole thing is the play of the mind. It's not um, something that is uh, a given in nature. Yeah. It, it's interesting as a Western thinker, and it's funny because I'm thinking about my dad right now. Like if I tried to explain this to him or somebody who has no interest in Buddhism, even maybe like a psychologist who's really fixed in their view of what the mind is and what a person is and individuality and the importance of individuation – um, I feel like some people might see this as like like what you're describing is a form of insanity <laughs> in, in terms of just like, is it dangerous? You know, like what is it to stabilize this view and to operate from a place of 
emptiness. Like how it seems like the forms that we construct are very helpful for orienting in the world and not just completely losing your mind. Yeah, well, I think the danger comes when you fixate on some of these as ideas. When you think, oh yeah, everything's empty. And you hold on to that as an idea and you use it as kind of a band-aid for reality rather than that you're actually penetrating it experientially. And that's where contemplation comes in, that's where meditation comes in. That, you know, as long as it remains in the realm of, um, of ideas, of concepts, then it's, yeah, you can make yourself pretty crazy by clinging to these concepts and thinking, oh yeah, I'm much smarter than everyone else because now I know that things are empty. Yeah. Well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it when some when you lose your job. <laughs> yeah, the emptiness of unemployment. <laughs> right. So um, now I've lost that train of thought. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> yeah, it just seems um, almost unnatural. Is there an un? Uh, an oh, it's un very unnatural. Yeah. It's you know the. The, the Buddhist teachings, once you get off the basic uh, foundational vehicle ways of approaching things, they are not how we normally think about reality. They are challenging our views of reality. And they do that not to be more sophisticated or clever, but because our views of reality are kind of... Um, Fakakta, to use the Yiddish term, <laughs> kind of screwed up. Um, we we cling to things in ways that um, the things aren't clingable to. Yeah. You know, we we're constantly grasping for things that will not fulfill our expectations of them. We're constantly running from things that have no power to harm us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it the it might seem crazy. Um but only because we're very attached to a reality that's that's not very accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting as I've done my studies into this and this this idea even just as an idea of kind of loosening the fix, fixity of our uh, attachments to things being a certain way, it, it seems like it creates a lot of space. Like this is something that I think we don't really have a lot of uh, room for in our society, in the Western mind, this idea of allowing things to be spacious. And I think a lot mm. of people, again, I'm thinking of my dad, if I try to describe meditation as having that quality, he'd be like, oh, so you're just spacing out. You know, but from my experience, there's kind of, there's an intelligence and like a clarity. Could you maybe speak to, yeah, what is that, that kind of fundamental knowing, I guess they call it prajna. I think, I don't know if I'm uh, conflating two different things, but um, where does that fit into this? I, I think you just explained it beautifully. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have anything to add to that, Brett. That, that was really well said, the, the spaciousness that we don't normally experience. That's very much the, the 
what comes from letting go of all the fixation. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting. I mean, again, from my experience, just that sense of knowingness. There's like a pre-verbal knowing quality that is like beyond concept. And I've only really had glimpses of it, but there's just like a sense of, I mean, it's like contented. It, it, there's just this like reflective kind of thing that you can't really fabricate. You can't really grab and you can't like, I'm even struggling. Like I want to be able to paint a picture of it, the textures and qualities, but, um, yeah, what what is it? <laughs> it's not a thing. There, it is the fundamental nature of reality. Mm. Yeah, I, I yeah, you're talking about it beautifully. Okay, well, I guess the question just uh, extinguished itself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm serious. I, I felt like you really nailed it, that that is the, um, the experience of, of letting go of fixation, of um, not being deceived by your own um, projections, and, and opening up, relaxing. Yeah. That's very much the core of what this is about. Yeah. You know, that's the fruition. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned when we started the talk on the Mahayana, and I've heard it called like the two wings of a bird, of the insight and compassion. If that represents, uh, I'm going to guess, the insight, uh, where, how does compassion arise from that? Why is that so, so emphasized? Well, it's emphasized because we're so fixated on ourselves. Yeah. And that's just um, self-destructive. And where it comes from is as you start to uh, cut through your own fixation, your own delusion, and realize a little bit of relief, you start to see much more how um, other people are suffering from their fixation and their attachment. And that is like naturally produces the desire to help them. Mm. So I, the compassion is a, a bit of a tricky subject because I think we in the West, or in the modern world more accurately, not just the West, but in the modern world, confuse it for empathy. That, you know, I feel your pain is compassion. That's not really what we mean by compassion. Uh, compassion in the Mahayana is the desire to um, help other beings who are suffering from delusion. Um, it's, and that's kind of the base level of compassion. But then compassion, as you progress along the path, also becomes more subtle and more profound. So initially, it's the desire to benefit, to help, to remove the suffering of beings that really seem to exist. But as you start to recognize the emptiness of phenomena, the emptiness of all these projections, the freedom from these projections, then you're no longer carrying around this strong sense that there are other people that you have to free. Mm. But you still have the mere appearance of those suffering people. 
And so the second level of compassion is the desire to help the mere appearance of suffering beings. The third level, which is the most profound and subtle level, is non-referential compassion. What Trungpa Rinpoche called radiation without a radiator. And that's the natural warmth that is beneath all the confusion that we normally experience. It's not, you know, people hear the word emptiness and they think cold, they think vacuum, they think outer space. Emptiness means also warmth. Hmm. There's a natural um, warmth that um, appears as we become free from our delusion. Yeah. And that's the ultimate form of compassion. Mm. So I'm just going to guess that it's probably not advisable to fabricate or to try and like appropriate your idea of what this is. So for people who are on the path, who are starting to open up to these teachings of compassion and non-duality, um, how do they best start uh, cultivating that compassionate attitude if it's not there organically? Should they wait and well, just like work on themselves more until they get like an intuitive sense? Or is it kind of something you have to just throw yourself at and hope for the best? Well, I think, you know, the, the number one instruction is don't focus on yourself so much. Mm-hmm. Look at others. Because the reason I think we're not compassionate, that we tend to not regard other people, is because we're so um, obsessed with our own stuff, our own desires and our own fears. And um, as Shanti Deva said, all suffering comes from focusing on our own desires and all um, happiness comes from thinking of the welfare of others. So that's like just a decision. That's not even some great realization. That's like, I'm going to try to pay more attention to others' needs than just my own. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where you start. Yeah. Is that kind of where like something like the paramitas would come in as kind of just a, a way to kind of look outward? Or like, how does that fit into, I guess, the cultivation? Or is it more of an expression? Or... Um, I know they're considered practices. So I guess I'm just asking about the paramitas, if that's not too big of a, a thing to well, dive yeah, into. Well, yeah, paramita means transcendent action. Uh, literally, it means the other shore, going to the other shore. And the other shore is, is like not this, that. So it's, um, it's action that isn't based on ego on self-centeredness and there are different schemes of paramitas but the the most common one is the six paramitas 
which are generosity, ethical conduct, um, discipline, um, effort, meditation, and prajna, or wisdom. And each one of these is a practice, but they're more emphases in how you conduct your life. Mm. You know, you might particularly focus on generosity. Uh, That's an important one, and it's also the kind of foundational uh, paramita. Mm. And then you might focus later on ethics or um, um, patience or um, not being lazy. And, you know, each of these is, is one of the, the main post-meditation disciplines of uh, someone on the Mahayana path. Hmm. Yeah. In relation to it being post-meditation, um, to me it seems like it, just to engage with these kinds of things, it invokes a sense of wakefulness and you have to be mindful to remember generosity or exertion is that kind of the main thing is it really kind of brings that quality of attentiveness to just your day-to-day kind of unfolding yeah i hopefully yeah hopefully (laughs) yeah you know i i think it it goes both ways that that the prajna paramita the paramita of um wisdom or or knowledge powers the other ones mm. so it's kind so of like the more the, yeah the more your generosity is um informed by intelligence or prajna the more transcendent it is yeah. the less self-focused it is mm. that makes sense okay well that's a topic i think we could probably go in for more than one hour. <laughs> so I'll I'll, think so. I'll spare you uh, that discussion right now. <laughs> um, we are kind of up near that time. So I wanted to give you a moment to just kind of share how people can stay plugged in with you, um, how they can continue maybe learning from you. I don't know if you offer classes. You obviously have some books. But yeah, how can people find you? Uh, well, I do have a website. And occasionally I put um, courses that are going to be offered on the website. I think I will be teaching a hybrid course probably in February, early March or something. Um, But I haven't tied that down yet. And then I'm going to be in Europe uh, in late March, April, probably in Berlin and London. And... uh, the big thing that I've been working on for a while now is a retreat in uh, this coming summer, a month-long retreat of uh, deep, intensive practice and study. And um, that's going to be in Colorado at Drala Mountain Center. And it's called the um, Entering the Vajrayana, Entering the Vajra World, I think. Uh, a three on a retreat. Sorry, I keep getting these notifications, and I thought I had it silenced. Are, are okay. you hearing these bings? Okay. Yeah, but you know, it's it's the modern age; it happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, there'll be a month-long retreat for people who have been practicing for a 
fairly um, good while already. You know, people who've been doing meditation and some study for a few years who might find that interesting. And uh, some of my colleagues and I are offering that. And that's the big thing we're doing. Yeah, um, yeah I'll have all the links for that too. I'm familiar with the retreat, so that'll all be available in whatever description people are watching this from. Yeah, but so. andycarauthor.com uh, is my website. There's no programs currently up there because I haven't gotten anything scheduled yet, but uh, there will be some things. Cool. And also your book. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but Into the Mirror is pretty phenomenal. I mean, like I said, uh, literally two and a half read-throughs in a month. So, um, yeah, I just want to plug that for people as well. Um, yeah. Good. Well, I, you know, I'm, I feel quite good about that book. I, I think I managed to present a few ideas that are helpful and some practices that are helpful in there. And, um, I, I felt, feel quite good about it. Yeah. It's also pretty accessible. I mean, some of the stuff is really dense, but the way you've broken it down in there, I thought was really, uh, expertly done. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that's going to be it. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Andy, for joining me on the show. Uh, it's an honor to have you on and to be able to just pick your brain on all these subjects. Well, it's really been nice to talk with you. And I love what you said about um, the, the basic nature of the mind. I thought that was really beautiful. And so if people get anything out of this podcast... Please pay attention to that part. That was really good. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I um, yeah, working with Larry that helps. <laughs> yeah, well, he's great. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Andy. We will catch you next time. Thanks so much. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end. I truly do make this show for you. That was the one and only Andy Carr. If you want to stay in touch with him, it's andycarrauthor.com. That link will be down in the description, so check it out. Again, I really recommend In Contemplating Reality. It's a great book. Also, Into the Mirror, very good. He's also got these online teachings. You know you're in the digital age, so you can find him if you are resonating with that. If you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21stCenturyVitalism. Consider just leaving a one-time tip. That helps me tremendously. It lets me know that you're out there and that you're vibing with what I have going on. Uh, beyond that, you can subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram. It's the digital age. We all know what to do. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time.